no one is born able to handle conflict. It's not something you get taught growing up. Most families are not in conflict healthy homes. They are either avoiding it or they're exploding or there's some combination of the two. And I think that we also have to recognize the context that we're in, whether we are talking about church and what our role is in the church or we're at work or we're in our home life. Like, for example, I don't mind conflict anywhere. Conflict comes pretty naturally to me, except in my most intimate relationship. So it's also important to recognize that we're all some sort of combination of nerves and fear and anxiety, depending on the context that we're in. Welcome back to the podcast, my friends. This is episode 126. This week, I'm bringing to you my new friend, Ashley Abercrombie. Ashley is an author, pastor, podcaster, mom, racial justice, anti-trafficking advocate, all manner of interesting and exciting things Ashley is involved in. She co-hosts the podcast Why Though with Tiffany Bloom, who was on the show some time back. And Ashley and I hit it off. You'll hear lots of laughter. We had a lot of fun. We had tried to schedule this back in December. My family got COVID. Her family got COVID. There was a whole sequence of breakdowns. But we finally sat down, recorded a wonderful conversation all about transformative love and embracing conflict. So I'm thrilled to share this with you today. I had a reader write to me the other day and mentioned that he just can't listen to podcasts because the audio format doesn't work well for him. And I said to him, hey, great news. All of my podcasts are transcribed now into text. They're available. You can read them. And he said, oh, that's fantastic. And so he said, now I can go back and dig into your podcast. So uh, if that's you, if you've got a friend who would love to read a podcast, Go tell them about the podcast, jonathanpuddle.com. You'll find the show notes for this show, and you will find the text transcription for this episode. So let's get into this interview with Ashley Abercrombie. Ashley, this has uh, been already fun. We've already been giggling and laughing, and I'm really excited to uh, welcome you to the show. And uh, just just discovering this morning how many of uh, people who've been on the show before are friends and followers and fans of your work, and mm-hmm. uh, I, which I didn't realize until like moments ago. But I've, I've, <laughs> I've been reading your work since I became aware of you, and I've been really enjoying it and thrilled that despite uh, two months of attempted interviews, here we are. Uh, so lovely to meet you in digital person, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you for having me. And uh, most people I have encountered really, really love you and your work. And so it's a joy to get to have a conversation with you. (laughs) That's very generous. Thank you. (laughs) I I would love for you to introduce us a bit to yourself and tell us some of your journey. Part of the reason being, um, you've written this book called Love is the Resistance. And when I read the title, I was like, oh, yes, that sounds great. I don't even need like the media kit. I would love to learn more. And then I saw the book and I read the subtitle and it's like, learn to disagree, resolve the conflicts you've been avoiding and create real change. And I'm like, yeah, hard pass, hard (laughs) pass, friend. (laughs) So um, having having read most of this and really enjoyed it mostly, Um, (laughs) it's my conviction as someone who has also meditated a lot on 
the subject of transformative love. Mm. But you don't get there without bruises. <laughs> yes. So uh, you can choose <laughs> what you're going to share, but I would love for you to tell us a bit of your story. Um, introduce us to yourself. Yes. Okay, great. Well, thank you. And you're so right. You don't get there without bruises and perhaps scars and lots of open wounds that need to be healed. <laughs> so I agree with you. I grew up in the Southeast of America in North Carolina. And so a tiny little town that was very neighborly, very connected. I loved everything about how I grew up. The, the one caveat to that is that in a small town, everybody knows you, but nobody really knows you at all. So it's very easy to hide and it's very easy to pretend and perform or to be sort of pigeonholed into a role that you play in your family or in the community or at your school. And that was certainly true for me. I like to say that I have a PhD in pretending, like I knew how to turn it on. I knew how to, you know, uh, pretend like I was okay when I was really not okay. And I did not know the power of reciprocity, nor did I have the capacity to be able to say to people who were coming to me to have their needs met, I also have needs. And I didn't know how to open my heart up and share with others. And what that ended up leading me to is addiction. And so I struggled for years with addiction to abuse of alcohol and drugs and perfectionism, dysfunctional relationships and eating disorder as a young person in my late teens, early twenties. And I went off to college like that and really sort of lost a lot of those small town support systems. You know, I went from a small town of 14,000 people to a campus of 28,000 people. And so learning how to navigate that, learning how to stand up in my own skin, learning how to be, you know, a, a very small fish in a very big pond, you know, was challenging for me and more challenging than I understood that it would be. And I think at the age of 21, I made the decision to change my life. And the only way I knew how to change my life was to run away from it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I wish I could tell you that I'd did better, but I didn't. I was like, where's the furthest place I can go from here? Los Angeles sounds nice. And I moved 3000 miles across the country to a city where I knew no one and just really hoped, you know, like on a little grace and a little prayer, I hoped that maybe I could start over again. And unfortunately, what I realized is that everywhere you go, there you are. And I could not escape myself and I could not escape my issues and I could not escape the bad choices I had made, nor could I escape the difficult things that had happened to me, things that I was a victim of from sexual assault to being in um, bad relationships and to having some issues that I needed to deal with in my family of origin and all the things that we kind of run away from, or that we just frankly are not taught how to deal with. You know, we don't grow up learning how to deal with trauma or how to manage a budget or how to do the simple things that we need to do on a daily basis as a human being, like you don't often learn that in your home, how to engage in difficult conversations, how to have conflict with loved ones, how to move through stress cycles. <laughs> you don't learn any of this growing up. And so I had to figure it out the hard way. And what ended up happening in Los Angeles, which, you know, in America, many people might think is like modern day Babylon. So they want to like, you know, stay far away from it. And they think maybe you can't find God in what they would consider a godless city. But I ended up working as a waitress at a restaurant staff. And several people on that staff went to a church that I then became a part of for 15 years. But no one ever invited me to church. They would just come out with me at nighttime. I would drink, I would party, I'd do drugs.
drugs. I would rage. And sometimes they would drive me home, drink Diet Cokes. They just cared for me. They invited me out to dinners. They invited me out for coffees. And that's how I became interested in their faith. And I had um, a little bit of faith experience. I was brought up in a Southern Baptist, not the kind that you're thinking about, not like the American version of Southern Baptist that you see in the news, but, you know, it was a very lovely faith community full of elderly people, full of people who were, um, you know, economically poor. And there wasn't a lot of political rhetoric or talk in that church. So it was a lovely space for me, but I was the only person who went in my family. And so it didn't stick kind of outside of Sundays other than watching the woman who took me kind of go around our neighborhood and care for others and drop off food and, you know, sit with people who were stuck in their homes. And, you know, she taught me a lot about how faith is, is, a, is an action. It's not just something you do for an hour on Sundays. But I think, you know, coming out to LA and meeting those folks who were so kind and good just made me feel like, man, maybe God can love me like I am. And maybe I don't have to be perfect to be loved. And maybe I don't have to clean myself up before I can get God's attention. And their love just really um, empowered me to feel like grace was real. And I remember asking them, can I come to church with you? Cause I've never met believers who are not judgmental, who did not call me names, who did not have a long list of the seven things I should do to make my life right with Jesus, you know? And I think because of that, my heart started to tenderize and open up to something other than what I had experienced. And my heart began to open up and tenderize towards real relationships. And I ended up meeting this wonderful girl. And um, I remember she called once and just said, Hey, how are you doing? And I did what I always used to do, which was I answered very quickly, I'm fine. How are you? And I flipped the conversation so that that person would start talking about themselves and I wouldn't have to really be seen or known or be vulnerable or actually share where I was. And instead of taking that, she totally called my BS and showed up at my house 10 minutes later and was like, Hey, you're not fine. And I just fell on the floor crying and I was like, You're absolutely right. I'm not fine. And for the first time, I opened up and shared kind of my story of sexual assault, my story about abortion. I shared that I was struggling with an eating disorder and I really didn't know how to kick the addictions that I was dealing with. And her response to that, again, was not to try to fix me, save me, change me, but it was to be present with me to offer me safe space to grieve and to grieve with me. And again, it was another opportunity for God to use a person to show me that I don't have to be perfect to be loved, that he's going to be with me no matter where I am, and that I don't have to clean myself up to come with him. So I know that's sort of a long-winded background, (laughs) but what that really did is begin to show me that my humanity is an okay thing. And that we don't suddenly arrive at this place where we have no issues, no problems and pain. Like that is not actually what Christianity is. It is not a formula that we can follow to build the life we want to live. And when none of us are exempt from going through hard things, none of us are exempt from dealing with things we don't want to deal with. None of us are exempt from the surprises of life, whether it is a medical diagnosis or a loved one does something that's really hurtful. We go through a betrayal. We personally make a mistake that's detrimental to others. I think understanding that that is part of the human experience for as long as we're living it was very freeing for me because then I stopped chasing perfectionism and I stopped chasing the mountaintop and I was able to take life as it comes. And years later, you know, I like to say recovery is for life. Like you don't ever (laughs) kind of get out of it. But years later, I, I did get married and I have three little children who are seven, four, and one. I've lived in Los Angeles and Manhattan. And then we're back in, in Southern California for the last couple of years. 
And it's been a wild and beautiful journey. And, you know, faith has, my faith has evolved over time. My love for people has changed. My love for justice has been fortified (laughs) through kind of the fire of my own life experiences and my desire to do good in the world. And I think that we all have this wonderful opportunity to cultivate rich and meaningful relationships. And in a world that is polarized and divided, we can be the people who can hold space for nuance and story, and we can hold the tensions of transition and we can do better at suspending our judgment and actually loving people the way God would, (laughs) loving even our enemies. (laughs) And so I think that that's what really inspired this book is my own 20-year life experience in the faith and the difficult story that I personally have lived and watching others go through difficult times. I wanted to normalize that for people more than we normalize it in the church. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That is... You're welcome. Okay, I think like my soul just needed your that you my soul needed you today. No. Um, I have just come off uh, brunch with a friend where we are just kind of like, is there any hope for the church? Yeah. And you know, you just laid out a really beautiful apologetic for mm. <laughs> there are some decent people who yes. are just trying to love and yes. care. And I mean, so much of my energy, and I, I recognize yours from your reading, is, is spent in calling the church to a higher standard and calling yes. people to reflect uh, the one whose name they claim to carry. Yes. But that's just uh, really nice to hear mm-hmm. that you, like, you were loved into wholeness by some mm-hmm. people. Yes. <laughs> and not judged into further destruction. No. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. That yes, that's just what I needed to hear. I don't know. I'm that. so glad. <laughs> Do we underestimate the transformative power of love? Yes. Are you kidding? Of course. And I think most of life, it's kind of something I've been letting float around in my life is that I mean, in my mind recently, it's just that most of life is mediating fear. And so some of the reason I think we don't tap fully into the transformative power of love is that we are afraid because that transformative power of love requires a level of honesty, of engagement with reality, not living in the past, not fantasizing about the future, not saying one day when I will, we will, you know, when this happens, this will happen, but really going, I'm going to take life as it comes and I'm going to be present right where I am. And whether I like my life or not, I'm going to return to love. And I think it requires believers to really operate in the fruit of the Holy spirit. You know, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And I don't know how it is where you are in Canada, but here, I think very often when people think about the fruit of the spirit, they think about things. They're like, well, I'm going to, you know, have this great house, or I'm going to get the spouse that I want, or I'm going to be able to finally afford that car. I'm going to get that promotion at my job. And we think of these things as blessings. And so when we run into spaces where relationships are hard or situations are hard, or we do not get the promotion that we wanted, or our life does not turn out the way that we hoped, then we are stuck in perpetual disappointment because we don't actually understand what love is. And Mm. we don't actually understand how to bear the fruit of the Holy spirit, regardless of our context, which is what we're called to 
as believers. And in the book of John 13 through 17, those are the, the, the chunks, the chapters of the Bible that I could hang my hat on. Like if I could just pull out a chunk, that would be it. It's the last sort of words of Jesus, the way he loves and imparts to his disciples, how he wants them to be in the world. He serves them. He loves them. He cares for them. And he tells them like three things are going to define to the world that you belong to me. And that's the way that you love each other, the fruit that you bear, and then the unity that you display. And Jesus does not describe unity as assimilation. So that's a very important distinction here because his disciples were all over the map. They were fishermen. They were doctors. They were all kinds of different types of people from different classes in society, different roles and sectors. And he brought them together. He was the glue that held them together. Mm -hmm. And I think looking at that, that to me is the transformative power of love, like to serve people who don't deserve it. He demonstrates that through, you know, Peter Buckingham saying, no, you will not serve me. And he's like, you have have to let me serve you. It's, it's going to be a problem if you don't. And he finally says, okay, yes, I will lay down my pride and let you serve me. And then Judas, you know, he gets down on his knees and serves him, even though he doesn't deserve it. And you think about the fruit of the Holy spirit that he asked them to display. Like how, how do we do that when you are economically impoverished for a season or a time or a lifetime? How do you display the fruit of the Holy spirit? How do you lay down greed and pride. If you have everything in the world that you could possibly ever need in order to bear the fruit of the Holy spirit, like we all, it doesn't matter where we are in our life. We have to be able to do that. And then how do I walk together with others? Even if they don't look like me, they don't vote like me. They don't think like me for all the beloved community of Christ. How do we speak the truth to one another? And then also cultivate this rich community that Jesus is asking us to cultivate. And that is the power of transformative love. And I like to write about it because I experienced it. (laughs) The people in my life, we were all waiting tables at a local restaurant in LA. It's not like we were fancy people. It's not like, you know, we fully understood, you know, we had all these big blessings and we were just, you know, doing big time things. It's like, no, we're normal people. And in that normal place, they displayed to me the love of God and they walked together. And when they had disagreements, they walked through them. And when they didn't agree with me, they still loved me and they bared the fruit of the Holy spirit, regardless of what they had. And so that is the way I've been loved. And I know that that's the thing that changes people. I think that you can preach at people all day. And I think that you can tell them what to do all day. And what I really believe that is, is an avoidance of intimacy. I really believe that. I think people, Christians avoid intimacy by telling people what to do and trying to use control and fear and back to mediating fear. That's not who we're called to be in this world. We are supposed to love one another. We are not supposed to find ways to scare people into obeying God. And he does not need a lawyer. Okay. He is God all by himself. Like he does not need a defense team. Do you know what I mean? Like the Holy spirit is way more powerful than any of us could be. And so I think recognizing all those things has really been life-changing for me and my faith experience. Yes. Yes. That's so good. I'm trying to think, cause I also talk and think and write and preach a lot about the transformative power of love. And I'm trying to think about why now, uh, given that you yeah. <laughs> stated your why, and I feel like for me, it was, it, it came about from like a cognitive dissonance mm. where what I was experiencing in church, uh, what well, wasn't bad uh, on the whole, there was some really great stuff. And I'm really thankful to the traditions that I was formed in for what they gave me. Yes. But one of the things that I, I grew up in, the, in a very charismatic context that was like, yep, yeah, you and Holy Spirit, you and the Holy Spirit, you and the Holy Spirit, mm. but it always looked like this. You and the right. Holy Spirit always look like this. And so I'm like, well, A plus B, no, like this doesn't work. And mm. so as I was like, well, I, I have 
I have spent time in the secret place as I've been yeah. instructed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it turns out that the fruit that's coming out of my life is offending people. Mm. And so my, the, the default behavior of the illusory false self I have spent so many years carefully constructing around myself yes. is mm. like very committed to the idea that I am uh, so lovable and wonderful. And that if I can just painstakingly uh, just convey my heart better in ever better language, then uh, no, we will never disagree about anything and we will see that we all agree about everything. Mm. And so, A, I would have a painful existential crisis whenever anybody yes. came up with me with their big negative energy. Right. And, and B, my theology was so tightly woven to the rightness of my leaders. Oh, yes, I've been there. <laughs> and I, and it's so funny because wow. my wife, my wife has a very different formative thing. And, and for her, she's mm. kind of like, what you mean? A, you thought your human would be right. What is wrong mm. with you? So you can spot mm. the Enneagram eight and I'm the Enneagram <laughs> two. Uh, That's our dynamic, but I'm the eight. My husband is the two. <laughs> awesome. So uh, your husband and I can get together. Yes. Drinks and tears. Later. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. But I think I think that love, like I, I was obviously in the midst of that, I was also transformed by love in a very yeah. intimate kind of like just the Father and Holy Spirit and Jesus meeting me and doing His work in me and like yes, hey, like I'm with you and I'm proud of you and you're and you're yes. on the path, keep going. And so then all of my talk about love has unfortunately been interwoven into this very complex, I need to prove this to you. Right. I, I, and so I use these non-loving authoritative ways. I tell you the number of manuscripts I've written about love in non-loving right. controlling right. authoritative language. I'm so glad those books haven't been published. Oh, yeah. Lord. Yes. <laughs> I think it's so real what you're talking about because, you know, I've, I've been there, I've dealt with the same things. And I think that, you know, we all go through this rich process with love, which it seems like you're, you're on the other side of this too, like me, but I think that that's how it starts. You know, love needs to be defined at first and you're very uncomfortable. Most people are very uncomfortable with mystery. Most people are very uncomfortable with the vastness of God and with not being able to make sense of some things. I think that it's very human to want to define and make sense of and direct and lead. And, you know, it's, it's less natural to us to go, God is a great mystery. I do not understand everything that happens in my life. I do not know why you're going through this. I actually don't think there's a good reason. I think, you know, it's like, those are the things that don't come as naturally to us, but I think the longer you engage with human beings on a, in a very close way, that's why they say proximity is power because when you really engage with people on a regular basis in an intimate way, and they tell you what their hurts are, and they tell you the pain that they're going through, and they talk to you about their real life, they feel unafraid to share with you. I think that's when we can realize how difficult life is for most people and that all of our great ideas about love and our great platitudes about faith don't always hold up in those mm. environments. And I think that's the power of 
journeying past the time where it's you and God, because I've, I've needed that. I think that's necessary. And then engaging with that interdependent necessity that God wired and created us for. It's like, you know, we're interdependent on one another. We actually need each other. And that's the only way I can fully see God is to fully see you and to fully let you see me. I think that's the the key and the power to unlocking the good grace of God. Yes. Yes. So good. So good. Okay. I want to, I want to quote you from your book. This is my introduction to you uh, (laughs) in your introduction to this book. And uh, this is what I loved right off the bat. In these pages, I wanted to be sweet. I really did. I wanted to encourage you how to live and move and breathe in this world, just like Jesus did. I would do my best to do that. But the truth is, I'm not sweet. There's no time for that. The days are urgent. The church in America is a cesspool of sin and hypocrisy. And there is a reckoning running along the same fault line of awakening. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) please tell me more. That's only page 16. I'm in. <laughs> we need to honestly own that the American church has lost control of the narrative. Our witness is neither wanted nor respected. Yep. And obviously you're writing in an American context to a probably a mm-hmm. American audience and, and that's right. Yep. And, um, but it's not limited to America. Right. I mean, right. Up here in Canada, we'd love to believe that we don't have those same problems. Eh? <laughs> we don't have any racism up here. Eh? But we do, and uh, <laughs> yes. and I mean, if you watch our recent news, there's just as much of a drive in people to uh, to bring what they think are good ends through forceful, violent, aggressive means. Uh, I love that you keep coming back to like fear, like because I get that, right? Like I, we are. We're, we're trying to do the best we can to keep this show on the road and avoid fear and stay out of pain and try and stay alive, right? And, uh, and the principalities and powers are offering any number of comforts and promises of control and ways to mitigate the pain. And, and I feel like certainly many people who have discerned like something is wrong in the church i feel like there is a an easy out to then homogenize to then get rid of the ones with the views that we don't like and to just form a core of really great um people that think like we think so we our our church in the last two years of covid has gone through this uh pruning pruning yes. process um, <laughs> between our interpretation of Trumpism and theological disagreement and mm-hmm. public health policy disagreement. We have probably about half the congregation in size that we had two years ago, but I preached on Sunday and I looked mm. out across the room and I just thought, ah, so many people here do not agree on a great many things. I can mm. see the people who think COVID is a hoax and where they sit. Mm. I can see the people who, who are very afraid of COVID and, and where they sit. And I can see the, the young and the old. And I can see the ones who nod and smile when I talk about peaceful nonviolence and the ones who's, who's like, I've never heard of what are you talking about? Mm. But I feel like everybody in this room 
is more loyal to Jesus than mm. to each of their bits and pieces. And I couldn't have said that two years ago. Mm. And so I feel like for our little community, we've gone through a really horrifically painful pruning, but it's like, well, this could work. Mm. This group of people could learn to love each other. Yes. This, this maybe yes. could grow and not like, because I'm interested in church growth, but like this could grow together. Yeah. This yes. could come into something even more beautiful than it, like the more than the sum of its parts right now. Yeah. And I feel encouraged at that. Um, but, but I'm also like, is, is, does this process require a pruning of a lot of people? Like, you know, do we do, what do we do Ashley for those whose eyes refuse to be opened and mm. who haven't, I guess, had enough of the bruising and the loving and like, mm. Do we just keep on going with those who are who are willing and ready? And do we and like do we just like wash our hands of the rest? Like like how how does the church? I guess we go small, and we mm. go back to basics. Mm. But I'm like, what what is the hope for? Obviously, you wrote this because you believe that that there's hope. <laughs> yes, yes. What does that look like in your head? So I love this question so much, and part of the reason that I love it is because it allows me to talk about the recovery journey. You know, I've been sober now for actually 20 years this month. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thank you. And I think part of what I've learned in recovery is that, you know, you can't change anybody. I can't change them. I can't force anything on anyone. Like people have to make their own choices. And I think in the evangelical context, not the church that I grew up in, but the church that I was a part of for a really long time, I learned that you're supposed to basically like walk with people until they get it. And I think this is a terrible way of love because it's always love with an agenda. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't walk with people to love them and be gracious to them and to be kind with them. But if our whole goal is like, for them to clean their life up. And that's the reason we're going to spend our time with them. And that's the reason we're devoting ourselves to them. Then our love is about us. It's not actually about the other person Mm -hmm. and it's not a right way to love others in my opinion. And I'm sure, you know, many theologians or whoever, you know, church leaders might disagree with some of the things that I'm saying, but what's been helpful here, because same, you know, we, we walked through, um, we started pastoring a church in 2016 on wall street. And so in the summer of 2016, right before the presidential election and kind of when things just started exploding here, all the stuff that was already under the surface, it's not like any one election just brought all this stuff to light or caused things to happen. It's like, it was all here. And same thing. We, we watched so many people walk away and we let them. And then we moved to Southern California. My husband is still a pastor and works on a church staff. And same thing. We saw half the people go, you know, in 2020 because of different people were upset about masks or they didn't think that we should do certain things, or they didn't believe we should talk about race, for example, that it was too political, that that's not biblical. You know, there were so many reasons that people made their choices to go. And what you have to do is let them. And I think the reason is because it's not our job to convince anyone. It's not our job to force ourselves on anyone. And in fact, Jesus, when that would happen with the religious leaders of the day, he would just speak the truth to them and keep it moving. No matter what it cost him, he wasn't looking to have, you know, platform with them. He wasn't looking to have credibility with them. He was looking to love people in the way of true love, you know, and he demonstrated who the father is by the actions that he did. And so in my opinion, trying to convince people or trying to walk with them until they get it. And I'm talking specifically about believers here (laughs) um, is, is not the way of love. 
I think that you're wasting time and energy. I also feel like those people cause significant amount of turmoil to pastors and church clergy leaders because they are always complaining. They never bring solutions. They are uninterested in, in anything except having you do what they want you to do. And so I think that that, you know, it's, it's not the kind of love I personally want to cultivate in the beloved community of Christ. We'll take a quick pause so I can thank my patrons and let you know how to support the show. If you are enjoying this, if you've been enjoying it for a while, or maybe you're a new fan, the best way to support the show is by joining me on Patreon. I know that lots of podcasters have their Patreon. Maybe you're supporting a bunch of folks. That's fine. If you've got room in your budget, consider joining me as well. $3 a month will get you in. It'll give you access to B-sides for these episodes, as well as lots of other interesting content that I share just for my patrons. You'll find that at patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. Thank you to Catherine, who is my newest patron. Big love. Let's get back to the show. I have great hope for them because look at the life of Zacchaeus as one small example in the Bible, right? Like he had a major turnaround with God. He was greedy. He was a person who exploited people and he had this massive turnaround. And so it's it's always possible that people who are stuck on themselves or have so enmeshed their faith with their politics or have so enmeshed their ideas of love with control, it is possible for them to find freedom. But I do not think it's my job as a Christian or as someone who's been in clergy leadership for a long time to try to make them. And I'm thankful for recovery because otherwise I would have driven myself crazy over the last six years. But you watch that same, same thing in the recovery circles, people come in and they want to get sober, but they don't. Mm -hmm. So if you spend all of your time and energy trying to chase them and trying to help them. That's why when you get a sponsor, it's set up so that the person who is, who has the addiction is always responsible to call the sponsor. The sponsor actually doesn't reach out to the person with the addiction because you want that person to make a conscious choice to change. And I think sometimes in the church, we forget that it's like, it's not my responsibility. You have to make a conscious choice to choose the beloved community where not everybody agrees with you, where we are not always that impressed with you, but we love you so much. You have to make a choice. <laughs> These are all the parts of your book that I hated. Um, <laughs> you're, so, you're so right. You're so right. I, I am. I am. I, I discover, I think, the core of my pride mm. is, uh, you know, as I'm convinced I can change them. Yes. And I'm, I'm uh, very insightful. We're, we're foster parents. Mm. And so there's, there's a whole layer of care um, that we provide to a child. And we have yeah. a measure of relationship with the parent. And, and you know, you, 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 want, you want wholeness. Yes. You ideally want the child to be able to live in their family of origin if that is safe. Yep. My mandate as a foster parent is for the child's safety and well-being. Yes. As a pastor and a lover, well, that sounds yeah. weird, but whatever. That's <laughs> I, right, I, though. I, I hear you. I, I observe the humans falling through the cracks of the safety nets of our cities. And that frustrates me ultimately more I guess in my most mindful moments, the frustration is less about her pain and more about my, the fact that I actually can't solve the problem. Right. Yes. And I so mean, I'm, you're saying it, you're saying the whole truth that we all deal with. 
because when you love somebody, you want the best for them and you want them to be able to make choices that will enable them to live the life they say they want or to, you know, end the loneliness that they suffer from by making different relational choices or to, you know, repair a breach by taking a right next step. And I think that again, it just has to be, God loves us so much that he gives us free will and he doesn't remove himself from our lives. Like he is always able to be present. (laughs) You know, he's always able to love us. He's always able to be close, but I think that it is really difficult to recognize that people have their own agency and they have to choose the next step that they take. And I know it had to be extremely painful to watch my family, for my family members to watch me fumble through that four years of brutal addiction and terrible life choices and bad relationships. I know it had to, I can't even imagine honestly what my mother was experiencing watching this whole thing. Mm. But I think that, you know, being able to choose for myself is actually what made the healing last. It's what made me become whole It's because I was choosing it for myself and nobody made me, nobody pressured me, nobody forced it on me. People tried for sure. I have that eight rebellious streak in me. So I'm like, don't tell me what to do. You know, so that that's probably also a little helpful here, <laughs> but you're the, right, father, the like, prodigal, the, yes. the father and the prodigal son literally yes. underwrites financially underwrites his son's destructive journey. Exactly. Outworking of the son's agency that brings him to the point of saying, hold on, this is yep. garbage. Yes. I'm going home. Yes. And exactly. I love that <laughs> leaving room for that to actually happen in the lives of people. Oh, man. It's rough. Oh, yeah. Okay. So let's talk conflict uh, brass tacks because that's where Jonathan Puddle uh, slides out of the room. Uh, <laughs> like I, I, I would just not talk about it. And that's right. my family of origins yes. way of dealing with things. Um, mm-hmm. My mother taught me dutifully how to stuff and not talk about the problems. <laughs> yeah. We have great conversations now that we uh, have gone through good therapies. Yes. Um, so do we have to all agree? And if we don't mm-hmm. all agree, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, are there some practical things that like for, let's say it, somebody who's, Okay, either pastoring or just looking to mm. to foster love and peace in their own family. Like, yeah. okay, if we've got COVID deniers and COVID fearful folks in the same room, yeah. as an example, is there a time where you have to lay out some ground rules or, or, or to mm. set a stage for like, here's how we're going to move forward? Um, I know mm-hmm. that that even sounds like you're acting from a position of authority, being able to even say that. So sure. I'll come to this with a bunch of presuppositions. So right. Get up, and you're going to talk to me about conflict. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that one of the first things I would say is that no one is born able to handle conflict. So anyone listening to this who's like, I just can't do it well, <laughs> you know, you're not alone in that. Again, it's not something you get taught growing up. Most families are not in conflict healthy homes. They are either avoiding it or they're exploding or there's some combination of the two. And I think that we also have to recognize the context that we're in, whether we are talking about church and what our role is in the church or we're at work or we're in our home life. Like for example, I don't mind conflict anywhere except in my close relationships. Then I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want, I want to just move on. I want to ignore the elephant in the room, but I could stop you in the street and have a wonderful confrontation and just be like, this is awesome. You know? So it's not, 
conflict comes pretty naturally to me, except in my most intimate relationship. So it's also important to recognize that we're all some sort of combination of nerves and fear and anxiety, depending Mm -hmm. on the context that we're in. So you need to know that. I think when it comes to, hey, we're all disagreeing about, you know, we have COVID deniers and we have people who are absolutely terrified of COVID and they're in the same room. I think it is, you know, in order to have safe space and you could do this, break this down to your home life too, with your partner and your kids uh, or, or your roommates or where, whatever your living situation is. I think it's important to establish here's how we respect one another. Mm-hmm. So in conflict, we are not going to call names. For example, if somebody wants to wear a mask, the basic respect thing to do here is to stay six feet away from them and not yell at them about their choice <laughs> you know? and, and vice versa. If somebody decides I'm not going to wear a mask and that's okay in the space that I'm in, then I'm going to, you know, respect your boundary, but I'm going to have my own boundaries as well. So it also comes back to, to choice and free agency and making sure that we're able to respect one another. And I think that that's where Christians really get in trouble is because we don't know basic respect. <laughs> we don't know how to respect other people's choices. And we also don't do differentiation well, which is something I write about in the book. We don't know how to say, okay, I end here and you start there. And we're not a meshed. I can make a choice and you can make a choice. And that's great. I'm going to respect you. You're going to respect me. And far and wide, I think people outside the church are a little bit better at this, you know? Um, and I think that we, we do need to do better because when you have healthy differentiation, you don't roll your feelings and your choices and your beliefs and your thoughts onto someone else. And you don't allow them to roll those on top of you. It's like, I can stand strong in my own skin because I have clear boundaries and I am able to respect who you are and what you say you believe. I think there is a time where beliefs become harmful and need to be confronted. If there is abusive behavior, if there is someone who's very clearly distributing, displaying racist behavior, or they are saying something through name calling or making a gross assumption about a group of people, like those are the times where you have to confront it. You cannot let it pass. If you feel too shy to do it in a public setting, you have to pull them aside later and say, hey, that language was really inappropriate. And when you use it, it causes people pain. Have you thought about that? Do you know where your belief about this people group comes from? Do you understand what's, what words are coming out of your mouth? Can you help me understand where you learned that and why it feels so true for you? So I think asking those hard questions, having confrontation, and then just being willing to be curious and something we practice in our home. I want to give you just a basic, I feel like I've been a little all over the map, but I want to give you a little basic one that we practice in our marriage. It's just when we have to have a difficult conversation or we need to confront an issue. One of the things that we'll start with is I really don't know how to have this conversation and I feel afraid to have it, to just be honest with you. And so what I'm asking for is your grace. I'm I'm going to fumble through it. I'm going to mess up some of the words. I'm not going to say it all right, but I'm, I'm hopeful that if we engage in this conversation, it's going to bring us closer. And so we just start there. (laughs) So we just are diffusing barriers. We are letting the other person know I'm not perfect. I'm not going to say it right because I don't know how to say it right. I just need to get it out so that they're not defensive when we say the wrong things. (laughs) And obviously that only works in a a semi-healthy relationship. You can't do that with everyone. But I do think it's important to sort of set the tone for basic respect And neither one of us is perfect, but we need to have this conversation because we love each other 
we value each other and we want to find a way to move forward together. It's, it really seems disturbingly like you are implying to me that conflict can be redemptive. Oh, yes. And even enjoyable. God. It's true. It's true. I'm telling you, because on the other side of it, here's what you get. Understanding and connection. Mm. And those are the two things we want anyway. It's why we avoid fights, because we're afraid we're going to lose that. We're afraid we're going to be misunderstood and we're going to lose relationship and connection. But if you can push through it, you know, Mm. even if you're in a space where you need a mediator or it is a larger group of people, it's not someone that's very healthy. You know, there's, there's different things that you might need a little help here, but that's what you get is connection and understanding the, the two things we all want and desperately crave. (laughs) That's so good. Uh, Ashley has a chapter called when conflict calls, which you can imagine is pretty much what I read after the introduction. (laughs) Uh, As often as this is Ashley, as often as possible, learn to say what you think. Mm-hmm. Learn to ask for what you need. Learn to ask for help. That's responsible adulting, and we need more of it in our world. So, like <laughs> in one paragraph, you summarized uh, the painful journey of the last eight years of my life and marriage. Because <laughs> <laughs> my my enneagram mate's wife is like, well, what, just what do you need? Like, like you're not happy, okay? For like, what do you need? And my two-ness that is so enmeshed itself with the needs of others that I'm unaware that I have needs. Yes. I never speak uh, unless I have just something super encouraging and great to say, which is also partly to make me indispensable to my community so that they never don't need me. Yep. Um, As often as possible, learn to say what you think. Mm -hmm. That that I think is really beautiful, is really challenging. I want to learn Mm -hmm. how to do that better. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of pages later, you have this affirmation. Uh, your chapters often end with sort of like this reflective, even meditative kind of moment. And and you start with this affirmation, conflict is normal. Yes. And again, I can feel like every cell in my body wanting to not live in the particular universe you live in. <laughs> yes. Yes. I can understand it. Yes. I mean, I have been conflict avoidant too. So that's, I'm not sharing this as like someone who is, has been so well-versed in it my entire life. I share this as someone who was, like I said, a master pretender in dysfunctional relationships, very out of touch with my needs, because I thought the only way that people would love me is if I could do things for them. Mm -hmm. And so I understand this and same with my husband as a two, you know, he, he, he only knows how stressed he is when he gets like an ulcer or his back goes out. Like something will happen in his body that flags him like, Hey, something is really wrong here and you need to deal with your stress. And so I just want people to know, like, it's normal. Like it is normal to resist conflict. It is normal to have conflict. It doesn't mean your relationship is jacked up. It doesn't mean you need to run away. It just means that life is a series of conflicts. And if we can make it more normal, then we won't run so hard and we won't feel so stressed. We can just say the thing that needs to be said and engage with one another in a way that's healthy and true. And that I think, again, it pushes us towards connection and understanding the thing we want the most in the world. (laughs) There we go, friends. You heard it uh, promised by Ashley Abercrombie that if you simply do the hard thing (laughs) and and move towards those you're currently avoiding, uh, there's a possibility at the very least, <laughs> that yes. they will 
reciprocate in kind. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'd love uh, if you would pray for us, whether we are yes. conflict diverse or conflict prone yes. uh, and everyone in between. But uh, before you do mm-hmm. so, any, any further thoughts or anything that you'd want to leave us with? I just think the days that we are living in are so difficult. And if you're out there feeling isolated or lonely or feeling like, how am I going to get through this? I think I want to, I want to just remind you that you're not alone mm-hmm. and that you're not the only one who's dealing with this and that you're not the only one who has these sort of scary, overwhelming thoughts. If I could just normalize that for you, that most people, you know, are also having the same experience. And um, I think that's helpful because it can feel like I should just be able to get back to normal. I should just be able to, you know, do this, that, or the other thing. And no, you shouldn't. <laughs> We've gone through a lot. And so I think grace, grace on grace on grace. You're not alone and you're not the only one. (laughs) So let me pray for you guys. (laughs) Jesus, I thank you that you are a very present help in time of need. And I thank you that you are the comforter and the advocate and our guide. I thank you, Lord, that when we don't understand everything, what we have is your presence. And God, I pray for people who might feel isolated and lonely and feeling like there's no way out of some of the situations that they're in or feeling like there's going to be no end to the contentious part of our world, feeling stressed about global crises, feeling stressed about national things that they're dealing with, feeling stressed about relationships that they're in at home, at work, at school. God, I just pray your peace that surpasses all human understanding. I pray God, um, because you said that, you know, we would have trials in this world, that we would go through hard things. And, and you also said not to fear because you have overcome the world. And so I thank you, God, that there would be a great sense of peace washing over people right now. I pray God, great grace in their relationships. I pray God that you'd give them the capacity to get up every morning and put their feet on the ground. I pray Lord that they would understand how loved they are, God, that grace would literally flood their life. And I pray for relationships, a soft place to land, good people who can suspend judgment, who are healthy, who want to be deeply connected. And God, I pray for ministers who are listening, clergy leaders, pastors who just need a break, who need a respite, God, who do not have the wisdom that they need, Lord. I pray that you give them the peace that they don't have to have it, God, that you have it. And I pray that they would feel released to direct people to you. I pray they'd grow in letting people go and ending relationships that need to be ended and pursuing relationships that need to be pursued. And I pray, God, that they'd be reminded that in the people they serve and love, Lord, that you are the glue, that they don't have to hold the universe together, that that's Mm -hmm. your job. And so God, I pray freedom and great grace. And Lord, we love you and we trust you. We don't understand everything, but God, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ashley. Friends, if you want to go and order her book, Love is the Resistance, learn to disagree, resolve the conflicts you've been avoiding, and create real change. You will find that linked in the show notes at jonathanpuddle.com. You'll also find it in the description if your podcast listening app has that feature. So, wonderful to be with you again. Lots more exciting interviews coming up over the next little while. Let me know how this sort of monthly, four-weekly rhythm is working for you. I wish I had time to be doing more uh, between foster care and writing and the other things I need to do to feed my family. I'm struggling to be able to do more than about one a month. So just let me know how that's working for you. Uh, 
love to connect on social media at Jonathan Puddle. You'll find me on all the platforms and Patreon, of course. All right. Have a wonderful day, my friends. Grace and peace to you. We'll talk soon.